morning again. It's good to see everybody. We're really glad that you're here and uh, just thankful for the opportunity to go through God's word once again this morning. Uh, just wanted to extend uh, just a, a heartfelt thank you um, on behalf of uh, the, the Thrive Committee and, and Kelly and others and uh, just the women of the church and uh, just thankful for um, the care and the just, you know, the, the way that you kind of just, uh, wow, it's already happening. I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm, I'm just really thankful for the way that you guys just really were loving on my wife and family yesterday and me and, um, I, you know, so grateful for uh, the, the ladies of this church and um, just thankful for how God uh, continues to use you uh, to care for one another. And our family really felt that yesterday, so thank you for that. Um, let me just open us in a word of prayer, if, if you would, and, uh, and we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for this morning, God. We thank you for your word. Uh, God, and we thank you for your people. And God, we uh, look forward with great expectation to the intersection of these two things. Uh, God, your word and your people. Let our hearts uh, just be conformed to your word. Uh, God, let us hear from your spirit this morning. Uh, nothing uh, that I have on my mind is of value. Uh, but God, we pray that uh, your word would speak to us. And so, God, we pray that these things would be honoring and glorifying to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I love playing games. Uh, I've always enjoyed sports and things like that growing up. Uh, but I've, I've always enjoyed uh, just sort of playing games together. It's, it's part of, you know, why I enjoy fusion so much. Um, uh, I, I enjoy just getting out and running around and playing crazy games sometimes. Um, we do a lot of different games, some more traditional than others. Uh, but when I was younger, some of my favorite games that I would enjoy playing were games that we played at night. Do you ever play night games? Do you remember? Can you remember that far back? Um, you know, when you were younger, maybe you played things like Ghost in the Graveyard or like Capture the Flag. Uh, we, have, we have a game, there's, you know, a lot of different names for the same types of games. We have a game called Body Snatchers. It's like sardines. Uh, but you play these games at night, and I don't know what it is, especially when you're a kid. It's just, it's just a ton of fun. You're up later than you probably should be, and you're just running around at night. Um, and it, it's crazy, and what happens can be crazy, too. There can be some kind of uh, ruckus that happens. Um, I remember countless times being out and about playing these games, you know, in the dead of night, and all you would have is the moon, and uh, there were always injuries, always injuries. I think that was part of the fun, you know, and you would just come around a corner and like run into a tree or you would run into another person. I was playing this one game down in Texas one time. Uh, we called it like cops and robbers or something. It was basically capture the flag. And uh, I was running uh, to try to get away from another kid and um, basically ran into him uh, as we both kind of went the same direction. Just split my eye up here completely, I still have a scar, there's just blood, like gosh, I probably shouldn't get into that, but um, yeah, the ambulance came, and we both had to, go. it was, it was a, it was kind of a crazy time, but we looked back on that with a certain amount of fondness, right, like it was just really, really good, but here's, here's the reality of it, right, is that uh, when you play games at night, there is no grace, there's no grace, like, you just step in holes, you trip over rocks, you run into trees, you run into people, and things happen, and, and it is kind of part of the fun. But there's no grace in that. And yet, right, really hard transition here, right? Sometimes, I think that in our own lives, we operate that in our spirituality, that we play these games in the dark, that we mess with sin, that we think that in these darkness aspects of our life, that somehow we can mess around and we can play these games and that it'll be okay. And, and the reality is, is that there are spiritual injuries that can take place. There are hardships that can come out of that. Uh, when we begin to think that we can mess with sin and that there won't be 
consequences to that. And for those of us that are believers and probably even beyond that, I think we recognize that, right? We know, we, we mess with these things and we're involved in these things and we know that they're wrong. We know that they don't honor the Lord and, and, and yet we're just kind of hoping that we can survive through it. But then out of that, what kind of comes out of that is we live with a little bit of this like guilt and shame, right? Because we know, we know that we're messing in areas that we shouldn't mess with. But here's the good news is that with Christ, there is grace in darkness. And I think that we see that in this passage. And so I've titled this message, Grace in Darkness. And we're going to look at the life of Peter. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 18, verses 12 through 27. But here's what I'd like to ask and have you to be thinking about this morning as we go through this is, in, in your life, as, as believers in Christ, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we receive the greatest act of grace that's ever been extended to all of humanity throughout all of time. And that is the redemption and forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. We just got done singing about that, right? But the Bible also teaches us that our salvation continues to be worked out in our lives. I think one of the ways that that happens is that God continues to extend his grace in our lives, even in the midst of our own failures, even in the midst of our own struggles, even in the midst of these times that we play in the darkness of sin. And so we see the grace of God. And so here, here's a question for you is in your life, apart from your moment of salvation and this ultimate act of grace that is seen on the cross, as you think back in your life, what is God's greatest act of grace in your life? What is God's greatest act of grace? What was the time, right? Because we don't tell these stories publicly in church. We talk about God's goodness and blessing. We talk about hardships and suffering some. But we don't talk about the times that we knowingly and we're actively involved in sin. And by God's grace, he got us through it. That he, by grace, brought victory in that situation. And, and maybe some of us, it's, it's kind of in and out, right? It's a struggle in our lives. And we, we feel ourselves sort of stepping back in and then back out time and time again. And God's grace is there for us. And so I want you to think about that. Think about what is in your life, an era, in a time, right, where you knew, you knew that you weren't walking with Christ. And yet God's grace was sufficient for you. And I want to just sort of think about that because failure motivates us. Failure cultivates maturity for us. Um, There was an advertisement on the side of a plumber's van. And it said, this, it said, there's no place too deep, too dark, or too dirty for us to handle. And I think, wow, that's really the heart of the gospel, isn't it? That when God looks at us, and when God sees our lives, when he looks into my heart, and he sees the failures, and he sees the struggles, and he sees the sin, the disregard, that there is no place that is too deep, or too dark, or too dirty for him to handle. And we see this in our text today. So again, John chapter 18, starting verse 12, uh, we see uh, this uh, sort of multi-drama that is happening. Uh, We have Jesus's trial and then Peter's denial. And these are put in contrast against one another. And the writer John here goes back and forth from the trial to the denial, back to the trial, Back to the denial. And so Peter is just, he is, you know, this is after the arrest of Jesus. And Peter is just sinning in almost a rapid fire and intentional way. At the very same time, at the very same time, the Lord is preparing to go to the cross and to pay the price himself for Peter's iniquity and for everyone in the world. Peter's denials are terrible on every level. They're acts of disloyalty, of cowardice, of pride, and fear. And as ugly as they are, the punishment for all of these denials is about to be borne by Jesus within just a matter of a few hours. And so the darkness, the darkness is there. But in the darkness, we see that grace shines. 
Because this is just the kind of sin. Sin at its worst. Among those who belong to the Lord. Whose penalty is paid by Christ himself. And so Jesus arrives in the garden. With the purpose of meeting those who would arrest him. And his hour had come. It was time to go to the cross. He was going to die at Passover as God's true Passover lamb. If you remember a small army uh, came to confront Jesus and he takes this opportunity to, uh, to demonstrate his glory. Um, and so he flattens them to the ground by his word of mouth. He demonstrates that he is securing the disciples and, and making it clear that they only have the right to come and arrest him. And so we continue on. And as this passage unfolds, we see kind of four different scenes pulling these two different dramas together. The drama of the trial and the drama of the denial. And so why? Why, why, why does John do it this way? Well, one is, right, because this is the way that it happened. These two things were happening simultaneously. Jesus is on trial and Peter is in the midst of sort of the, his, his, you know, most distinguishable sin of his life. The, the hardest failure of his life. And these two things are happening together. But I also think that in addition to that, John is showing us that the point of Jesus going to death, the very reason that he is doing that is to pay for in full the sins that are being committed at the very time, at the very hour by the one who was Peter, right? Who was probably considered to be the best follower that he had. That the best of the best is in full-on denial. And it is meant to show the grace that exists because Jesus is about to die for that very person and that very sin. It paints a dark background to display the light and glory of God's grace. And here is the grace in the darkness that Jesus is on the way to the cross to die for the sins of Peter that he is committing at the same time that Jesus is heading to death. And so think about this picture in its totality. Sometimes we separate these things out, right? Trial and this issue with Peter and his denial. But think about these things as a whole total picture of what's happening here. Because Jesus is very aware, and we'll see that at the end here. Jesus is very aware of what's going on, not only in the sense that he predicted it, but that he responds to it as well. And so we want to look at this together, and I see the, the grace that God gives us in darkness. The first part of this is Jesus's trial, part one, if you will. So read with me in uh, chapter 18, verses 12 through 14. It says, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So here we have the first part of this trial that happens. And I think that there are a couple of interesting points to make out of this. Things that are uh, meant to stand in contrast. We're going to look at the denial of Peter. But what's interesting here is it starts with a different denial. Not of a follower of Christ, not of one person, but it is the denial of a multitude. The, this particular multitude is, is sort of a conglomerate, right? There's a lot of different people there. There's Gentiles that are there, right? The Romans. And then there's the Jews that are there. There are soldiers that are there. Slaves that are there. Priests that are there. Pharisees. The heathen are there. The religious are there. It is a mixed multitude, but in one respect... They are all absolutely alike. They are all utterly blind to the glory of Christ. They have experienced, right, some people firsthand, but everybody for sure had certainly heard the testimony of Jesus. A three-year reign of miraculous power in this land. And they know all of the record of that, right? They never denied that. They never denied the miracles of Jesus. No one ever tried to because they knew it was true. They had the information. And so this multitude is in denial. And, and, and so what do they do? Scripture tells us that they bound him. They tie him up. Well, 
You know, why do they do that? We, we still do that today, right? We bind people so that they can't get away once that they're captured. But it's also interesting, if you look in Matthew chapter 26, verse 48, uh, Judas told the authorities, when you arrest him, hold him fast. Isn't that interesting? Judas says, hold him fast. So what do you think that Judas was thinking? What was he assuming? Do you think that he was assuming that maybe the disciples would try to grab him and help him escape? Or that Jesus would try to flee himself? Probably not, because Judas knew him. I think that Judas was probably assuming that he would do some sort of a miracle that would set himself free, which he knew would have been very easy for Jesus to do. And so Judas is saying, you've got to figure out a way to hold on to this guy, because he has power. And so they bound him, and they bound him from their perspective because they wanted to put him in a position as a criminal. Uh, he wanted to be, they wanted to shame him. They were tired of the ways that he had discredited them, and particularly the Jewish leaders. And so there's this interesting parallel that's here. One of the most significant Old Testament pictures of Christ is the picture of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And in Genesis chapter 22, verse 9, Abraham, it says that Abraham, when he was about to offer Isaac, he bound him to the altar. God was gracious, though, and he spared Isaac and provided a ram. But from then, uh, from then on, we read, it says, bind the sacrifice with cords onto the horns of the altar. And so we have this multitude that's in denial, and they have bound Christ. Why? Because it was not just the denial of who he said he was, but it was also a denial of the words and works of Jesus. Like we said, we, you know, they had known them. They, they had seen it for their own eyes, many of them. They had heard about them. They had heard his words. They had been hearing all week words that had never been spoken before, like, believe me for the works or believe me for the words. But still, even after that, after knowing and hearing about and seeing the resurrection of Lazarus and seeing the, the creation of an ear when Peter cut off Malchus's ear at the arrest, even after seeing these things, they were unmoved and they were resolved to carry out their purpose. And so we see the beginning of this trial. Uh, just in terms of a point of information, there are really six different trials that Jesus faces there are three that are religious and three that are civil. And so we see that uh, beginning here. First, there's a trial with Annas. Then it goes before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night. These two take place in the middle of the night. We'll talk about that. It's illegal. And then there is a third kind of fake one that happens at daybreak, again with Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Three religious trials. In the midst of that, there are also three civil trials. Uh, they take him to Pilate first, and then Pilate sends him to Herod for the second one, and then back to Pilate for a third one. And so there are six different trials, three civil, three religious, and this is the first that we see here, and this is to be the arraignment of Jesus. And so what we see in chapter 18, right, is that this is Annas. Annas is the one who is the first, you know, the first trial. And so who's Annas? He is the high, uh, the high priest, according to verse 19. But in verse 13, if you look back, it says that Caiaphas was the high priest. And so you might wonder, well, what are, you know, what are they talking about? Well, this isn't really that big of a difference than kind of how we use the word president, right? That, that once you're a president, you, you always have that sort of ideology, right? Like you carry that, um, that, that label, and so if you were a president, you're the one who bears the title. And you always are designated as president, even though you might not be the current president. And the same thing would have been true of high priests. Uh, particularly in the Jewish world, in Numbers chapter 35, a high priest was a high priest for life. And so they would always think of Annas as being the high priest. Uh, but what we know from history is that the Romans didn't like that idea. It, it gave one person too much power. And so what they would do is they would always remove the high priest and put somebody else in charge so that the, you wouldn't have one person accumulating this massive power and this massive wealth. Uh, but 
Annas was corrupt, and so he was willing to work with the Roman government. And so they would remove him from power, but not that far. And so we see in Scripture that there were five of his sons that became priests, and one of his grandsons became a high priest. And eventually here we see one of his sons-in-law, Caiaphas, becomes high priest. But the people would have known and seen Annas as kind of the true high priest, Uh, Not that they didn't respect Caiaphas, but he was sort of the patriarch of the priestly family. And even though he had been removed, he would have carried with him a lot of power, control, and authority. And so they live in these priestly apartments that are around the courtyard where the trial is to take place. And Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, and You know, when it says that year, it's kind of a little bit of a mockery because the Romans would remove them. And so it was just that particular year was was a way to sort of mock that idea because the Romans were constantly making changes to the family. And, And so this is important, right? Because Annas and Caiaphas and the family needed to get rid of Jesus. They needed to have him removed. Why? Because he was a threat to their power. The one thing that the priestly family feared was that the Romans would become their enemies. So in order to court the Romans, the priestly family basically abused the people. They allowed for the establishment of the Roman taxation system. They corrupted the worship in the temple to such a degree that even Jesus himself at the beginning and the end of his ministry clears the temple and wipes it out. And so people resented the high priests because they saw the greed and the wealth, the power and the control, but they also respected the office. And so they were kind of held in that tension. John 11 verse 47 says this, it says, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. They were saying, what are we doing? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. This is what they feared. Now, we see this today, don't we? Even in church circles, right? That there is, no matter how religious people might be, there is always this pull for control and influence and fame and wealth. And unfortunately, we see this in the church. We see that people who sort of start out or say that their intention is to help people know and understand who God is, that eventually there are times, not everybody, but there are times that the control and the influence and the power and the authority and the greed overcomes. And all of a sudden it begins to compromise what's right for the people to protect their own wealth, to protect their own authority, to protect their own control. And so this magnifies that sin. It magnifies the wickedness of the heart. And so we see this right away in the first part of his trial is its control and authority and power to remove Jesus because he is a threat to their own wealth and prosperity. And so they want to get rid of him. And so then we switch over and we begin to look at Peter's denial And we see part one of this starting in verse 15. At the same time that this is happening with Annas, we see Peter's denial. Says this starting in verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. And so we have Peter's denial. While this trial is going on, Peter is in denial. There's, again, a couple of different points that we want to sort of draw out of this. One, 
is that Peter is following Jesus, right? He's, He's wanting to see what's going on. But I think it's important to note here that he's following Jesus from far off. Matthew 26, verse 56, talks about how when Jesus was arrested, all of the disciples fled. At the arrest in the garden, they all split. But Peter and another disciple found their way back. They they couldn't take the separation. They couldn't take the wondering of what was going on. And so they wanted to see what was happening to Jesus. And so Mark adds this in Mark chapter 14, verse 54. He says, it says, he followed him from far off. He's not anywhere near Jesus. He's following Jesus, but he doesn't want anyone to know about it. He's following in a shamed way. He's following in a cowardly way. He loves Jesus too much to leave, but he's too much of a coward to come and to stand where he is. And so he is found in a hiding place where he can watch and follow. You might wonder who is this other disciple that is with him who just went right in. If you jump over to chapter 20, verse 3, you have the story of the empty tomb at the resurrection. And it says that Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. And we know from the other gospels that this other disciple is John. The other writers tell us that. And so we, I think it's reasonable to assume here that the other disciple, in, just as it is in chapter 20, is John. That it's consistent with how John talks about himself, so to speak. Uh, John appears all throughout his own gospel, but he never mentions his own name. He calls himself something, but never John. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, the other disciple, or here another disciple, but never John. John is always humble and lowly, and he doesn't even want to name himself. And so we have John who's here. Now, sometimes people will say, well, maybe it was somebody else because this person, this disciple, was known by the high priest. And, you know, how is it that that could be John? How would he be known by the high priest? Well, here's sort of just one quick thought about how maybe that would have happened. John's mother was Salome. Salome was related to Mary. Mary was related to Elizabeth. Elizabeth was married to Zechariah, and Zechariah was a priest. And so we know that in this day and time that families were very much connected and together and around. And so, yeah, it's, you know, sort of this person related to this person related to this person, but that there would have been a lot of interaction within that family, that there was a family connection with John's family before he even became a disciple of Christ. And it was probably an important connection. Zechariah, you know, whatever he would have called him, was a significant priest. And he did priestly duties at the temple. And so it is entirely possible that when John was there, went with his family, and he's reconnecting with his family, that he would have reconnected with Zechariah. And that in that sense, he would have potentially been known by the high priest. And as he has relationships and is known by people in the priestly community, John would have been able to just walk right in. But Peter was standing at the door outside. And so we have John and we have Peter. And John is walked in and Peter is outside. He's following from a distance. And I think about this in our own lives, right? That sometimes I think that that can be the temptation for a lot of us. Is that we love Jesus and we want to follow Jesus, but really just from a distance. We're fine showing up on Sunday mornings to church, but when it comes to speaking up or saying something at work or in our families or in our neighborhoods, that's a different story. And so we're fine being disciples of Christ, but we just want to do it from a distance where it's safe. And this is what Peter was doing. It was a denial out of distance, but it was also a denial out of fear. John just boldly walks in With Jesus and Peter is outside. And so John sees him and comes and talks to the the doorkeeper, the slave girl, and, and gets him in. And as he's coming in, 
She just asks him this question. Now, think about this. This is a slave girl. This is a doorkeeper. This is not Roman soldiers looking for people to arrest. This is a doorkeeper asking a question. And he answers, I am not. And it was the first lie that started a series of lies. And so why did he fear her? Why did Peter fear the doorkeeper? I don't know that he really did fear her. I think that he feared everything. He feared what was happening. And so there was a shock of this question that launched an answer that was already premeditated in his mind for self-preservation. She's a doorkeeper. She's a slave girl. The question caught him off guard. It was unofficial. It was casual. It was insignificant. But he was already prepared to lie in order to save his own hide. And the very one that he said he would die with, Christ, he lies about even knowing. I think that that is how oftentimes temptation comes to us, doesn't it? When we're not planning on it. It catches us off guard. It surprises us. Before we have an opportunity to kind of muster up our courage in our weak moments, we can kind of prepare for it if it's a formal challenge. But these informal challenges kind of throw us off. We aren't as prepared for those, and we just react out of instinct. If we're prepared, we can kind of choose our weapons, right? If, we have, if we're prepared for a conversation or some, some sort of aggression, right, that's going to happen, we, we can kind of choose our strategy and we can be ready to go and we know what we're going to say back. But it's in those moments of weakness when we're not expecting it that sometimes the realities of our heart really come out. And we have this, so to speak, knee-jerk weakness. And we see that here with Peter. And in his weakness, he denies Christ. And that leads us then back. John takes us back. He wants us to see this against the trial. So then we see the third part of this, which is Jesus' trial, part two. And we see this in verses 19 through 24. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered them, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the, all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers struck Jesus with his hand saying, This is how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, which would be the second of the, of the religious trials. So we see this interaction. So while Jesus is in denial, or while Peter is in denial, Jesus is being questioned. And it's interesting here to me that Jesus is trying to make two very important points. He, he's trying to make Two very important uh, illustrations about what's going on. The first is that he's trying to expose what is really happening. He's trying to expose the truth. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. This whole trial was a mockery of justice. Nothing legal is happening here. It was supposed to be a legal arraignment. But nothing is legal about anything that they did. They had already decided that they wanted him dead. And they were thirsting for his blood. This was not a trial. This was a plot. It was a murder plot. It was an essential part of Jewish regulation that no prisoner would be questioned in a way that would allow their answer to be an admission of their own guilt. And so today, in our terms, we've kind of translated this into our Fifth Amendment, right? That in a criminal trial, it cannot, a person cannot incarcerate or incriminate themselves. If you're going to find someone to be indicted or guilty, there has to be evidence beyond self-confession. 
You can't make someone confess. That is sort of drawn into our American justice system. It's drawn from these ancient Jewish patterns. Uh, There was one person that said it this way. Uh, He said, our true law does not inflict the penalty of death upon a sinner by his own confession. And, And so here's the first thing that's happening, right? Is that the high priest who is the judge says to Jesus, you know, tell me, what, you know, about your disciples. Tell me about your teaching. And he has no legal right to do that. He has no right to ask him any question at all. He is presumed innocent until he is proven guilty, and he cannot be the proof. And so it's illegal. And so Jesus responds to him by answering, I have spoken openly to the world. He says, I have spoken nothing in secret. And so he basically saying, why are you questioning me? You should question the ones who have heard what I spoke to them and known what I said. In other words, he's saying, bring witnesses like you're supposed to do. You know, do this legally. He, he knew that they wouldn't, but he's trying to expose the point that this is being done illegally. It was illegal even according to Roman law. And of course, this was Jewish court. They were the ones who were guilty. They were the ones that needed to be indicted. They were perverting justice. Uh, You know, Jesus didn't do anything in secret, but they were doing it in secret. He says, you've been listening to my teaching all week, every day in the temple, in open, in public. Find somebody to comment on my teaching. You know, you know the story of what I've done. You know, you know who my disciples are. Go and get them, and you can determine these things for yourself. So it's not that Jesus is being uncooperative, right? He is simply asking for legal treatment. Not that he'll get it, but he is trying to expose the illegal nature of this event. But remember, it was Jesus who said in John chapter 15, they hate me without a cause. And so it's important. It's important for Jesus to make it clear that the trial that is being held against him is illegal, that it is not right, and yet he is going through it. He's enduring it. And that kind of leads to the second part of this, is not only did he want to expose the truth, but he wanted to be identified as the true judge. He, he wanted to make sure that people would see that he was the true judge. I, I think it's interesting here that Jesus calmly says, why don't you ask the people who heard what I said? And, you know, you go to verse 22, and it talks about this. One of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, is this the way that you answer the high priest? This was the first physical blow that was inflicted on Jesus' body. And it was received at the hand of a sinner. It was received at the hand of a Jew. And so it was a fulfillment of Micah 5.1. It says, they shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod in the face or on the cheek. So even in this, he is proving to be the judge of Israel. You know, it's it's interesting when you look back at this passage in Micah. Here he is in a court where there is a judge, right? Annas as the high priest. He is a judge. And yet Jesus is identifying himself as the true judge of Israel who is hit in the face with a rod or with a hand. And in this way, he is fulfilling prophecy. And he's identifying himself as judge. And so because of this, Annas hates Jesus even more. The people around him hate him. And so that's their reaction, is to strike out against him. And I love that Jesus just responds calmly. You know, if I've spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong. But if rightly, then why do you strike me? Uh, the, the word testify here really is the operative word. It's this idea you know, where he's saying, you know, where is the testimony here? Where are the witnesses? Again, it's the illegal nature of what's happening here. And so Jesus is being prosecuted. He is in this trial in the dead of the night in an illegal fashion. And he's enduring what he does not deserve for the sake of Peter, who is acting out in a way that makes him guilty, that makes him guilty of sin and worthy of death. And yet Jesus 
is going to die for him. It is grace in the midst of darkness. And so there's no hot response. There's no retort. There's no spirit of resentment. He's perfectly calm. He handles the attackers by laying bare the ugly reality that there is no trial at all. This is a vigilante operation. This is a murder. And justice at this point has to release him because there are no witnesses. There is no crime. There's no indictment. And there's no arraignment. But instead, in verse 24, Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And they can't release him. They can't because it will affect themselves. It will affect their own power, their own authority. And so they want him dead. And they sent him bound. And so Jesus stands resolute, right, in his trial. He is the true judge in the midst of an illegal trial. And then John pans over once again to see the fourth and final frame of this passage, which is Peter's denial, part two. Look in verse 25. It says, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of the disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, a relative of Malchus, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. And so here we have Peter. You know, you kind of wonder what's going on in his mind. He's following from distance. He's following out of a place of fear. But he hasn't left. He sticks around. He's, he's hanging out with the crowd that is conducting this illegal trial of Jesus. And so then he is confronted again two more times and he denies Christ. And so I want to sort of highlight the significance of Peter's denials. Think about who Peter is and what this means. Peter is one of the twelve. But not only was he one of the twelve, he was one of the inner circle of three. Peter, James, and John were probably Jesus' closest friends. And most would say that Peter was probably the leader of these three. And he was, in all of the listings of the apostles, he was uh, the primary apostle. He was the first leader he was the first one that was called by Jesus. At Caesarea Philippi, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember that passage that Jesus says, this was not revealed to you by man alone, but by the will of your father. He says, blessed are you. How, oh, it's painful when you think about the curses that he's calling down on myself. And Jesus said, Simon, O son of Jonah, this for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. The Heavenly Father specifically revealed Jesus to Peter. Peter accompanied Jesus to the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was the one who promised that even if everyone else would fall away, that he would remain even to the point of death. This is Peter. He, he was the cream of the crop. He was... He was in some sense the best of the best in terms of the followers of Christ. And so these denials are significant because these things don't run from anyone, right? We don't get to a certain place in our Christian walk where somehow we have closed ourselves off from the possibility of denying Christ. Peter was filled with fear he was afraid of what would happen to him in this world. He was afraid of death. He was afraid of the repercussions. He was afraid of the suffering that would come along with it. He loved his life in this world at that moment too much. And I don't doubt that there is any person in this room who couldn't say, you know, I've done that too. I, I've loved my life too much in this world at different times, my reputation, my status. 
at one particular moment or another, we've all had points in our lives where we have denied Christ through distance and through fear. I think that when we see the story of Peter, it's difficult to separate it. It's easy sometimes for us to kind of point fingers at other people, especially other believers, and we can point and say, how in the world would they ever get to a point where they would do something like that? But what's the reality? The reality is is that we, we all sit in the possibility of that position. That we all struggle with sin, and none of us are in a place where we can be certain that these things would never happen to us. Because we know that we are weak. We know that we struggle. We know that the temptations are real. And so it would be difficult for us to say, oh, you know, I would never do something like this. But then there is this turning point in this story. And and to share this part of it, I'm going to flip over to Luke chapter 22. You can follow along with me if you want, or you can just sort of listen. But there is something that is significant at the end. And I I sort of think about this or like to call this um, the crow in the look. The crow in the look. Because I think that this is where we see the grace in the darkness. The crow in the look. Luke chapter 22, verse 59 through 62 gives us a different rendering of the same story, of the same thing that's happening here. And this is what Luke, how Luke renders it. He says, and after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. So this is the third denial is recorded in Luke. And this is what it says. It says, And immediately, while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Verse 61, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered what the Lord was saying, or the saying of the Lord, and how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly there are times in our lives I think that that we fall that we struggle that we fail and and we know what it is like I said at the beginning these are often the stories that we don't want to talk about it's the real issues in our lives where we know that we're living in sin that we're acting in ways that we shouldn't act that our attitudes that our words that our conduct are not right before the Lord there are people here today that are sitting here that know exactly what it is. They know as soon as somebody says something about it, there is this thing that comes to mind and they know this is an area of my life that I know that I am not walking with the Lord, that I have not surrendered this to the Lord, that I am living in sin. And with that, there is this shame and this guilt. And the reason for that is because it is meant to draw us back. It's meant to bring us back into fellowship with Christ, that we would confess, that we would repent, and that we would be restored. And this is the grace. It's that Jesus puts things in our lives to remind us and to call us back. For Peter, it was the crow and the look. And for us, it could be different things. It might be somebody who says something to you. It might be a message that's preached. It might be something that you read But Jesus puts things in our lives that are meant to be signals to call us back to a place of repentance so that we can be restored back into fellowship with him. But the journey back is hard. It was not easy for Peter. Uh, The gift of repentance is free and easy, but the journey is oftentimes difficult because it requires us to be humble. It requires us to be vulnerable. It requires us to admit and to acknowledge. It requires us to desire and want to have these areas of sin in our life fixed, restored, forgiven, resolved. And so the journey is back. Look at what happens here with Peter. God gives him these three things. Peter remembers, right? The the rooster is crowing. 
And, and then we have this look from Jesus. It's two very painful things for, for Peter. Jesus had programmed in Peter's mind so that he would remember. He had prophesied, right? He had spoken these words before the rooster crows. So why did Jesus do that? Why did he predict this? Why did he tell Peter what was going to happen? Was he just trying to prove that he knew things in advance? He didn't need to prove that to Peter. Was he trying to prove that he had power to know? He he didn't need to prove that. Peter knew about Jesus' power. Why did he tell Peter what was going to happen? He told him because he was laying down his word in Peter's mind so that he would be able to reclaim it when the time came, so that he could restore him when the time would come. The reason that we study God's word and we allow his word to permeate our minds is that when we are embattled in the midst of our own sin, that God uses his word to remind us of his calling on our lives. And so memorize scripture, listen carefully, feed your hearts with scripture so that God has hooks to be able to bring you back when you stray. Scripture is God's primary remembering agent. Secondly, Peter leaves. He remembered the word that Jesus had spoken and he leaves, he gets out of there. That's a key statement. He shouldn't have been there to begin with. It was a tempting situation. It was really a a form of temptation. But isn't it beautiful how God sovereignly orchestrated a way out? All these people are sort of asking him questions and they're starting to kind of come against him. But God creates this way for him to be able to get out. And he walks away. And so... Jesus orchestrated his escape really for the second time that evening. And I think the same thing is true for you and I. Is that once we remember what God's word says and once we are reminded of God's call for us to get rid of all that entangles us, God creates a way of escape. He gives us an opportunity to get out. Right When it comes to dealing with the sin in our lives, It's much more than just acknowledging that it's there or remembering that we are disobeying God. But it means that we take action to leave, to move away, that we take actionable steps to get away from the sin that has bound us. And then thirdly, Peter weeps. He went outside and in Luke's gospel, it says that he wept bitterly. So it wasn't just any kind of weeping. It was a sort of weeping that came from deep inside the heart. It was an agony of the heart. It was a demonstration of true repentance. Peter was acknowledging. He not only left, he not only realized what he had done was wrong, he left the scene, but then he repents in his heart. And we see more of that, you know, drawing that out of here, but there's more of that even later in John that we'll look at down the road. But but Peter repented. It was authentic and it was genuine. And so this is how it is, right? That we struggle with sin. There's darkness in our lives. For some of us, it's a game. You know, we're kind of trying to figure out how long we can get away with it. We're trying to think about, you know, maybe it's not really that big of a deal, And we kind of feel like we can live with one foot in and one foot out. That we can come to church and we can say all the right things, but we're going to sort of do these things on the side. And in that way, we're committed to following Jesus, but just from a distance, right? I'm committed to giving my life over and yielding myself to the will of God, but not in these areas. And it's because of fear and it's because of insecurities, It's because of our own desire for our own control and our own desire to try to meet our own needs. That somehow we think we're going to miss out if we don't. And and in that, God comes along and he gives us a crow and a look. He reminds us. He reminds us of who he is. He reminds us of his desires for us. He calls us to a place of repentance, a place of authenticity. 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to sort of deviate a little bit here. I just so let me let me share. Uh, the backside of your bulletin notes, um, there's lessons of Peter's denial. I'm not going to go through that. I'll just put it as an appendix on Encore. If you want a copy of it, I'll send it out, and it'll sort of explain that for you. But I'm not, I'm not going to go through that with you right now. Here's the thing. I, you know, one of the things I appreciate, and Pastor Paul and I talk about this from time to time, is um, just, uh, I think we both you know, just really feel how important it is to be authentic. And um, it, like I said at the beginning, it's hard because uh, it's easy, I think, to stand and to talk about the blessings that God does in your life. I think it's easy, uh, although difficult, right, to share about the sufferings and hardships that you might face. Uh, but it's, it's hard uh, to admit and acknowledge sin. I you know, I wonder what Peter thinks uh, that this is recorded for every person in human history to see his greatest failure. And, and I think about, you know, God's continual acts of grace in my life and many things uh, that uh, should have gone very differently for me. And yet God was gracious to call me back. And, uh, you know, terrible things. I would be embarrassed to share publicly with people. But it's a reality of our Christian life. And, and so you, you guys know, you've, been, you've heard uh, some of the, the hardships, right? And, and I just have been through some difficult things in the past. And, it, and it's hard to talk about, but at the same time, it's, it's easy to talk about in the sense of like, you know, there's this sort of common coming together and praying for one another that's found in, suffering and hardship. And some of that's legit. Um, but there's another aspect of this that's, that's not super fun to talk about. And that is uh, that, you know, there is this reality that, you know, you go through some of these things and you experience uh, betrayal, you experience suffering and hardship and, uh, you know, people that you've trusted have um, you know, it's sort of shifted and come against you. And, and it's all these hard things. Um, but in the midst of that, what it, what it did for me is it, it created this denial. If I'm being honest, like I was no different than Peter because in a lot of ways, it forced me into position, not forced, I, I, I took myself there, where I was in a position where I was following Christ, but I was doing it from a distance and with a lot of fear. You know, I was upset about what happened. And so it took me to this place where I, you know, I would have obviously communicated that I was still a Christian, but I wasn't really interested in talking about it. For a long time, I wasn't interested in going to church. For a long time, I was, you know, just pretty disgusted and uninterested by having spiritual conversations. I, I didn't want anybody to be I, talking about those things. It was, in a lot of ways, it was no different than Peter. That it was just a season of life. And it's not justified by the suffering. The suffering was real. But there was this internal spiritual element where I just was shutting off my relationship with the Lord. And it was a reality. And, and even in me now, right, that there are these consequences. It's it's, you know, it's hard for me to trust people. If, if I'm being completely honest with you, it's hard for me to trust the church, not you, but the church in general. Some of you know this. You've been hurt by churches in the past. And it's hard. And what happens is that there is this, there is this anger and this bitterness and this resentment that resides in me. And it doesn't control me every day all the time, but it's there and I feel it. And I wrestle against it. And it's sin. Right? Let's, let's not sugarcoat this. It's, it's sin. It's wrong. And, and when I live in these moments where I'm operating out of anger and bitterness towards people in the past, it doesn't matter whether or not it's justified in the sense of what they did or didn't do. What matters is the condition of my heart. 
And when I live in that sin, in that anger, in that bitterness, it, it, forces, it forces this distance in my relationship with Christ. It, it, it forces me into this position where I'm, I'm living out my walk out of fear, not out of boldness and confidence. And so that's just, there's, there is this reality, right? That, that this, is, this is just part of my journey and God is continuing to work. He's continuing to heal. He's continuing to do some of these things. And I'm not, please don't say anything afterwards. I'm not doing any of this to try to like have a pat on the back. I don't need, you know, you guys are so loving and kind. I know you're gonna respond, but that's not my point. My point is I'm no different than Peter. I'm no different than Peter. I, you know, denial is part of my life. It, it's part of my struggle. It, it's, it's, I, I think in a lot of ways, it's, it's part of what it means to walk with Christ is that we walk in fellowship and we experience our blessings, but then there are these things that happen in our life that come out of places of weakness, that weakness that come out of places of temptation, and, and it can put us in a place where we begin to back off. And it creates this, man, just this friction in our relationships with people and our relationships with the Lord. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that made any sense or not. This is what happens when I stray from notes. But <laughs> I just, I, you know, I think, like, we just got to call it what it is. And I think that we need to be honest about it. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor or not, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what we do or who we are, it doesn't matter if you're Peter or, you know, if you're Bartholomew, right? Like, like it doesn't really matter. The reality is, is that we are all, we're all potentially there. And, and I think at times we all have been there. And so we can feel a lot of shame and we can feel a lot of guilt or we can allow, right, the crow and the look to call us back. And, and that really is what I'm praying for. I'm just praying that God would continue to remind, that he would continue to call, and that he would continue to give me the strength to leave these places of anger and bitterness. And then I got other things in my life. That's probably not the worst thing going on in my life. You know, there's a lot that's going on. But we, like, let's be real. Like, confess sin. Like, this is what it's about. Like, acknowledge that we have junk in our lives. And, you know, we're, Peter, Peter denied Christ. And he was the best of the best. And God calls us to be restored to him. I think about, you know, 1 John 1, 9, it says that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just, just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, you, sorry, you can navigate around that a little bit, I hope. So, uh, let me just pray and uh, we'll close our time in worship this morning. Father, we thank you for this morning. And God, we just thank you for your word. Gosh, I don't want any of my stuff to get in the way of what your word says and just your truth. But God, I, I, you know, I feel it in my heart that, you know, we're a lot like Peter. You know, it's easy to look at Peter and think, well, why in the world? You know, why in the world would he do this? And yet, I've done it in my own life far too many times. God, we know that we have sin in our lives and we know that we have areas that continue to need to be pruned and so, God, I pray that you would give us the strength to confess our sin, to repent in our hearts, to be drawn back into fellowship with you. God, that we would not be believers that would follow from a distance, that would follow out of fear. God, that we would, uh, that we would desire to be restored to you. God, help us to be authentic in our walk before you. And God, thank you that in our darkest moments of failure, that your grace is sufficient and that you pave the way 
to come back and to be restored. Father, in its greatest form, we thank you for your grace that was extended to us on the cross. God, that you gave us opportunity that, to by faith have a relationship, a personal relationship with a God who cares and loves us and has forgiven us, who walks with us, who walks with us through the good times and walks with us through the hard times and walks with us through the sinful times. And God, may we may not be deceived by our own sin, but God, may we be turned back to you. I just, I pray for anybody who's here today who's just struggling, who knows that they're involved in something that they're doing, whether it's an attitude or the way that they're talking or an action or behavior, God, that they know is not honoring to you. And it's just a struggle. And in that, they feel the guilt and the shame. I pray that, God, you would give them their own crow and a look. God, that you would give them their own signal to be reminded that you love them, that you have not forgotten about them, that you have not forsaken them, that there is a way out, that there is a path of victory. It's not without struggle. It's not without pain and hardship. But God, that there is a way. And it's a way of grace. And so God, we give you glory for these things in our lives, past, present, and future. In Jesus' name, amen.